Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Looking to expand or move your company? Look no further than Ohio. With a talented workforce for in-demand industries like tech, healthcare, engineering, manufacturing, and more, you can staff up and scale for growth. Ohio's central location and reliable infrastructure will help you impress your customers, while Ohio's affordable cost of living and quality of life will excite your employees. Why survive somewhere else when your business can thrive in Ohio? Visit successinohio.com today. Some facts. Get you some facts right here. Get you some facts. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. My name is Corey O'Flanagan, and I am your host. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Why don't you go ahead and hit that little subscribe button and then we can just carry on with our lives. As always, this podcast is proudly a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Go and check it out for all of your musical podcast needs. So on the show today, we have Ben Apatoff, who is an author who recently released his book, Metallica, the $24.95 book, such an interesting great biography i recommend all of you go and check it out and this book is on well you guessed it metallica so happy to finally be talking about them on the pod as a reader of many musical biographies i was really pleasantly surprised to read this because it breaks the format that i have seen many books of this nature follow ben and i take some time to dive into a long list of lingering questions i have had about about the wonderful band that is Metallica. So whether you are a seasoned fan or hearing the name Metallica for the first time, please stick around and enjoy this episode of the Song Facts Podcast and join me in welcoming Mr. Ben Apatow. So we are here with Ben Apatow, who wrote, and Ben, if I get this title wrong, you just tell me, but it's such a unique title. It's just Metallica, the 2495 book. That is correct. That's yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it, it, this is some sort of play with how Metallica in the past has had um, their the price of their albums and stuff like that come out to fans. Can you kind of touch on that a little bit? 
Yeah, it was something they did on a few releases in the 80s, like on Cliff Amali called the 1998 Home Video and on uh, the Garage Days uh, EP, they called it the 598 EP. And it was a way to keep retailers from overcharging the fans. So, and it, they were labeled kind of like the way the book is labeled with the little kind of sticker looking format on the top of it. So I put that on there as sort of a tribute to uh, yeah, yeah. I really like that. Um, and I just want to say thank you right away for just coming on and talking about this great book. I've personally read countless rock and roll biographies over the years. It's something that I just am drawn to. But one thing I noticed is that there tends to be a pattern. Um, and I feel like yours broke that pattern. Well, thank you. And it has me wondering what was um, the goal that you had in mind when you initially set out on the journey of writing this? Well, my goal was to, and this is a cliche, but it's true. My goal is to make it the book that I wanted to read that I didn't have, because there are kind of Metallica biographies and behind the music type stuff and stuff in the pitch. I said, I didn't want to be stuff you could look up on the internet. I wanted it to be a little deeper than that. And there is some of that in there, but I wanted it to be, um, sort of wide ranging and encompassing. Um, the comparison I've been making, and I know this is pretentious, but it's like how, you know, Moby Dick has like the story chapters and the chapter and the character chapters and the philosophy chapters. I want this to be a little bit like that when I was doing it, where there is, you know, there's the fact chapters, but also like the, you know, what are the questions this is raising chapters and the, you know, the character chapters and who is Kirk and who is Robert and stuff like that. So yeah, I want it to be sort of a kind of wide range of a Metallica. Well, and it's one thing that kind of going in that, I mean, I, I kind of didn't have any sort of inkling as to what this was going to be. So in my head, I kind of just assumed that it would be a Metallica book that was like the, you know, the Keith Richards book I read, the Bob Marley, the Ray Charles, where they all kind of, here's the beginning, here's their origins, here's their upbringing. And then it kind of, I mean, for the most part, they go, here's where they struggled as musicians. Here's where they started dabbling and kind of being fun with drugs and alcohol mm -hmm. and then they got really famous and then the drugs and alcohol took over and then there was like the downfall and then the rise up again and then mm -hmm. it kind of drifts off into the sunset and that's like the pattern of these books but the way that you've um, segmented your chapters I just felt like it was a nice little reprieve and you don't really go into all of that other stuff that I think is part of Metallica's legacy, especially with the drinking and everything in as much detail as these other books. And so was that an intentional thing for you to do is like, that's just a small part of who they are. Um, it was. And I mean, I am kind of a sucker for that stuff too. Cause I do like the, you know, general rock biographies of like, you know, they, you know, don't everyone said they couldn't do it. Then they did it. And then they totally. became huge and then the drinking took over. And then, so I, I like that stuff, but um, I, mean, I like reading that stuff, but um but yeah, I didn't want to be that kind of book. I want it to be about, you know, their art and the questions they raise in the music. And, you know, that is a part of them that I do have to touch on in the book. But I didn't want it to be a gossipy book. I want it to be about, um, you know, the art. And, you know, part of it is who they are as people. But I really want it to be about uh, the music, you know, the significance, what they stand for, um, the questions they raise, stuff like that. Yeah. Did you, I read somewhere and if I'm wrong on this, let me know, but I read that you were born in the same month that Kill 'Em All was released. Is that right? I was born uh, shortly after that, the summer after that happened. So I guess okay. it started fall. So yeah, okay. September. So, yeah. Yeah. We're roughly the same age then. So it gets me curious. Oh. When did Metallica become your, uh, your, like, when did you become, first become a fan? Well, I became a fan in the nineties and uh, you know, 
it's funny talking to, you know, younger people have, you know, different views about the newer records and older folks think that the 90s is when they start to go downhill. So I do have a, um, a bias towards the 90s era of like the Black Album and stuff like that. But it's, I actually, my first Metallica records were the 80s ones, which I got because they were used. So I had those old records before I heard the Black Album and I was not disappointed in it when I heard it. And yeah. I was not, I had sort of a, either because the songs were already, you know, a part of my life or because I was too young to understand this whole like, uh oh, my band got popular mindset. I, um, I liked them all very much when I was, uh, when I was young. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that that's kind of the same path that I was on. I remember working in a restaurant um, through high school in like the mid nineties. And that was obviously they had huge success by them, but I was, I always gravitated towards those uh, third and fourth albums, which yeah. we, we will touch on a little bit, but I wanted to go back because for anybody that's Metallica's just got such a huge fan base global and they love to argue and it yeah. doesn't take many searches um, of the, of the name Metallica to realize that there's just so much disagreement um, of a few things in the band's history. And one of them being Dave Mustaine's writing credits on ride the lightning, which you touch on a little bit. And I'm wondering based on your research, what were you able to sort of clarify there? You know, I think that really the biggest fight that they have over his writing credits are on um, on Leper Messiah, a master of puppets. like okay well i'm gonna do right uh, rust in peace and i'm gonna get you know faster and longer songs and then they get you know more radio friendly on metallica on the black album and he's like okay countdown to extinction i'm gonna you know and he's so um competitive with them that i think that that's uh i think that their success is a big part of his is that he's just so sort of uh focused on you know kind of outplaying them and outdoing them whether or not he can but uh but you know, it's a, it's definitely a part of his legacy. I think he's got a lot to be proud of there. You know, some of those songs that, uh, you know, it, it's morally ambiguous. You know, I mean, they kept some of his songs after kicking him out, and you know, you can argue whether um, that was the right thing for them to do, and they should have just been like, okay, we'll start anew. But uh, yeah, the songs are there, and you know, you hear, you know, Kill 'Em All sounds great, including the stuff that he wrote on it. So, yeah. yeah, and I they, think I read somewhere that Kirk had said that they he was like, you know, maybe some of the beat first like lines of these guitar solos mm -hmm. were already written, but I was able to just kind of take those and then meander where I wanted with them. So they, I would call them mine. Um, would you kind of, would you agree with that? Yeah. That's what it sounds like from looking at older, um, older Metallica recordings that, you know, apparently the, uh, the producers asked him to kind of recreate Dave's solos and he's like, no, I want to you know do my own touch on it. Uh, another thing you see too, is that in the, pre-Kirk songs with Dave is that they let him write some of the lyrics and he was not really the Dave Mustaine we know you know yet. He wasn't a very good lyricist. And when Metallica kept his songs, they sort of picked and cho chose what they chose. Like, okay, we're gonna keep some of these riffs, but we'll let Kirk do the solos. James is gonna rewrite the lyrics. And they sort of mined his music for the stuff that would work best for them. And yeah. 
I think it's fascinating to listen to when you hear like No Life to Leather or the older uh, metal programs he plays on. Yeah. So I think the first two albums, um, Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning, tend to have a just an early Metallica sound. And I think that that starts to really pivot at Master of Puppets. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering through your research, what's the biggest change that you see in the band between those first two albums and then Master of Puppets? Well, uh, you know, one thing is that in, um, you know, on Kill Maul and Ride the Lightning, they're pretty much a different band. It's, you know, Kill Maul is pretty much written by um, uh Dave, James, and Lars, and with, you know, obviously Anesthesia by Cliff, and on um, Ride the Lightning, it's just four different guys. Kirk is on board, Cliff is more of a songwriter, and Master of Puppets is, uh, I think, more of a uh, kind of confident version of that sound, you know? By Ride the Lightning, they were still trying to find a new lead singer. They were still saying, okay, James is going to be here as long as we can't get John Bush from Armored Saint to do it. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, by, uh, by Master of Puppets, they um, are confident in their abilities as a band. They've played around the world and they've got sort of a, you know, I say on some of the um, early recordings, James, on like the live recordings, James sort of sounds like a lion cub learning to roar. You know, he's very like, you know, finding his voice. On Master of Puppets, they're, they have a very like assured sense. And you read about the making of that record and there's some decisions that are like, wow, thank God they didn't do that. But they, um, they feel like a very uh, assured and developed band. And, you know, they're only 22 when they made that, but they're just like, they have a, they feel very advanced at Sam Master Puppets in a way they are on the younger ones. Yeah. And I mean, even though they were so young, just their, their life that they were living at that time was so fast. And yeah, so definitely. you can really pack a lot of experience and, and knowledge into that time, even though you're, you know, our brains aren't fully formed until we're what, like 24? Right, something like uh, that. Yeah. So I find it very interesting. What do you think is the song on Master of Puppets that best kind of displays their growth? Uh, you know, I mean, obviously you'd want to see the tail track. Maybe Orion. You know, Orion is such a. listening to that for the first time and thinking like okay it's gonna get heavy it's gonna be like you know battery or you know um thing that should not be and like the heavy part's gonna come up and then like waiting for it and like maybe there isn't one what what is this and yeah. then you know the and uh yeah it's just such a um i remember scott ian has a quote like you know listen to that song it's like did they get a bottle of beethoven pills like how did they come up with that and it's uh you know that sounds like on that record they sound like they're playing stuff that they didn't sound capable of on Kill 'Em All. You know, they sound like, you know, they, they sound like they are just so much more um, advanced as songwriters and musicians, even though like there is a punk kind of innocence to Kill 'Em All that I love. But yeah, you know, as you, I think if you listen to Metallica and you go album to album and, and track to track within those, it kind of feels like they're, if it's on, even if it's on a subconscious level, fighting this more clean, rounded out sound rather than just like this hard thrash metal that they Mm -hmm. kind of that they personally love 
and are drawn to as fans and musicians, but like something inside of them as songwriters was just like, wanted to put something out that was beautiful. And they did that quite a few times, even on those, especially on, um, uh, uh, ride the lightning with fade to black. And then, um, and then one. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny because, you know, those are all considered Stone Cold classics now. But if you look at old reviews, a lot of them along uh, talking about those songs say this is where they went bad. OK, goodbye, Metallica. You know, we're going to Megadeth and Slayer now. Like this yeah. is this is over. You know, this is OK. You know, just, you know, spin called Master of Puppets, like the corporate Deathburger Metallica album. And like, you know, you see people are horrified about Fade to Black and you know, now like the hardest metal fans, if you, you watch them play fade to black at like the big four shows and people are just like cheering and freaking out. But back in the day, people were very uh, angry and shocked about those songs. Yeah. And there's, we're, we're going to get to the Metallica album and, and touch on that a little bit more. Um, I, this is something that is ever since I saw the behind the music of this, this is the kind of question that pops into my head. So I wanted to ask you, cause I've never been able to ask anybody but how might the legacy of Metallica be different now if Cliff Burton hadn't tragically passed away? Wow. Um, you know, the thing about Cliff is that since he died young, everybody sort of projects their own image onto him. And there are some people who say Cliff never would have sold out. Cliff would, you know, they would have still been a thrash band. They still would have, you know, if Cliff had been there, they would have stayed like their young selves. If you see interviews with Cliff, he'll say, like, you know, maybe along the lines we'll make a music video. And right now I'm listening to more R.E.M. and U2. And so who knows? I mean, he could have uh, developed like that. I think that, um, I don't know. I think they might have gotten, and you see some of it, you know, on like the SNM albums. But I think they might have gotten more uh, more classical inspired. They might have had like more longer composition type songs. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. It's fun to speculate on, but you know, Cliff was a famously unpredictable musician and you see people like try to be like, okay, I'm going to play the Jason songs the way Cliff would have played them. And it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun to speculate on, but Cliff was so unpredictable on his own that, um, that I don't know if there's a, uh, a solid answer for that. You know, he would, uh, he would do, he would go his own way and you know, the other guys in Metallica would make fun of his clothes and stuff. And he'd be like, whatever, I'm Cliff. I'm cool. And they, uh, and <laughs> he, um, and, uh, you know, the people try to photograph him for publicity stuff and he wouldn't want to pose because he'd think it was poser stuff. And he was such a such an independent minded person that I don't know if there's a, a solid answer that I think like that's how they would definitely be if Cliff were still there. Yeah, I, my kind of thought on it has always been, um, you know, the band that that yeah. used to. Yeah. So the band had uh, all these just like. I would call, I I don't want to like downgrade them or anything like that, but just your normal traditional like rock and roll musicians. And they have Garth Hudson. Right. And Garth Hudson sitting back there, just master, just unbelievable. Like the way that he, I remember seeing something that said that is the way that he was able to convince his parents that he was joining this band was by being like, oh, I'm actually going to teach these guys about music theory (laughs) and and classical music and stuff like that, which I just thought was a hilarious story because with his upbringing, his parents were like, you cannot go play rock and roll. Wow. But when I hear a song like Master of Puppets and some of these other ones that have these layers and then they have all these segments of the song that are completely different that to me is cliff's like lasting legacy and so i don't necessarily and my thought was like maybe it didn't change maybe all the changes that cliff brought happened before he actually passed away and obviously time 
people change throughout time. So there's always going to be that factor, but the way that they became better and more in-depth songwriters, I think in my view was a big part because of him, because he was sitting there writing these classical type bass riffs and then they were figuring out a way to structure metal over the top of them. Oh, definitely. And you, you hear that in the compositions on Ride the Lightning and, you know, Master of Puppets and, you know, something like Kill Em All, which came before a lot of his songwriting contributions is very like motorheadish. you know, it's kind of like mile a minute and just like, you know, riff upon riff and, you know, and on, you know, you're like Call the Cthulhu and Orion and those are the more, the more sort of uh, cliff driven songs near the end. Yeah. So what I hate skipping over something. And if we had to go come back and do a a second one of these to really cover this band as thoroughly as we need to, I'm fine with that, but I can't go into a justice for all because I need to get to the black album with you. And I'm just, we you kind of touched on this a little bit because this was obviously very divisive, but can you try and sum up why this album both angered so many people while also pushing the band into a whole new stratosphere of success? Well, it's kind of like their Dylan Goes Electric moment. It's the moment where, you know, they tried something different and all the other fans were, you know, alienated and upset that, you know, they change their sound and the rest of the world was like what is this we, we've been missing you know where has this been all our whole lives it yeah. just you know we, we thought metal sounded different this is unlike anything we heard you know uh at the local uh liquor store the um guy who works as a big metallica fan there was something about the book and he says you know i remember my friends and i gathered around the tv to watch the enter sandman premiere and at the end of it we were like that's what they sound like now. We were so disappointed. We were just like, we were all fans of like, you know, Justice and Master and yeah. And you can see like an older fan base getting uh, getting annoyed by that. But speaking as a younger fan who got that while looking the 80s records, I, um, to me, they all were heavy and they were all fast. And I, you know, didn't kind of understand the sort of popularity contest of Metallica yet. And I... I like them for the same reasons. I like the Black Album songs for the same reasons. I like the Ride the Lightning songs or the Master Puppet songs. But uh, I think, you know, the thing Lars always says is um, we didn't come to the mainstream, the mainstream came to us. And I think they made the world safer for that kind of music. You know, you look at after the Black Album comes out and suddenly the first ever top 10 chart success of Pantera and Megadeth and Slayer yep. and Anthrax and, you know, Korn and Rage Against the Machine and Nine Inch Nails and all these much heavier bands now have a space in uh, the mainstream that they didn't before because of the Black Album. So I think it's more a, an instance of them making the, uh, making the mainstream accept heavy music than it was like, you know, okay, well, we're gonna have to compromise our sound and change things for, for popularity or anything like that. Yeah, and I guess I would think that maybe the, the anger is more of a flash in the pan type of idea rather than like, if you listen to Metallica from those first four albums. And then all of a sudden in 91, like, are you upset for a month? And then you're like, you know, they're actually pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think there is some of that too. You hear that with older fans too, where they say, you know, I was so mad when it came out and, you know, I think someone from either Slipknot or Mastodon, there was a recent, a more recent metal band artist said that recently. I was like, I was so mad when it came out. Now I listen to the songs. I'm like, yeah, this is good. You know, it's, uh, I think it did win people over, over time. Stay tuned for more Song Facts Podcast right after this. Ever wonder how my voice is bouncing off your eardrums so clean and crispy? No? Well, let me tell you anyway. 
The Lyra microphone by AKG brings their legendary acoustic engineering to a versatile USB mic that delivers the highest quality audio in its class. USB connection. This is good for me because of the simplicity and the ability to just plug and play without an interface. You may have gathered from various episodes that I am doing this show on the road, so being that I record most interviews in a different location than the last, it is good for me to know that I have a high-quality, easy-to-transport-and-use USB mic like the Lyra to make sure my sound is clean. Whether you're like me and recording a podcast, a musician recording vocals or an instrument, or if you need to do a voiceover for a YouTube channel, Lyra's innovative AKG Adaptive Capsule Array adapts to your performance to record pristine audio. It has four versatile capture modes. What's a capture mode, you ask? That is how the mic picks up your voice. Just trust me, with these four options, it's really all you're going to need. With AKG Lyra, you'll be up and running in no time, no matter your experience level. There's no assembly, no need for separate audio interface, no fiddling with software settings. It just works right out of the box. And Lyra is something that is compatible with Windows, Mac, iOS, and Android devices, and all major recording softwares. So. If you're looking for a mic that offers ease of use along with a high quality sound, check out the AKG Lyra and look no further. And one of the things that I find really interesting is the the hiring of Bob Rock to to do the album with them because I, I guess what they said was that maybe it was Lars or something heard um, the work that he had done with Motley Crue. And really liked it, which this is just so surprising to me because they seem like they're kind of like in the same realm, but they're just completely different bands to me. And my view is like Metallica would just look at Motley Crue and just laugh and just be like, look at all your makeup. Look at you guys are just ridiculous. This is Mm -hmm. we're such on a different level of metal than what you guys are. We're, We're more purist, maybe them thinking that they're just the glam side of things. But then they go and hire him and. So to me, that kind of says like that was famously the album that Motley Crue um, cleaned up and really kind of came out and shined and kind of showed like what they could do as pure musicians without all the drugs and alcohol. And it kind of seemed like the same was true with Metallica. I'm wondering if you think that his influence is why that album sounds the way that it is. I mean, definitely why it sounds the way it does. I mean, Bob Rock's best work sounds fantastic whether or not you like the songs behind it his work tends to sound great like yeah to feel good wow those songs sound great they're like blowing out of the speakers they sound so good on that record but and uh same with the black album i think it's also important that he did not get starstruck working with metallica because by then they had a reputation and they started off working with their kind of friends when they were younger and then they got this big producer who Here's Injustice for All. And he's like, I don't really get it. And he's working with, you know, the Cult and Bon Jovi and um, and uh, Master po- and and Motley Crue. And then when he gets into Metallica, he's like, okay, I see them live. I get more of a sense of it. He likes it, but he's also not so in awe of it that he's like, you guys do whatever you want. He's just like, you know, he says, no, we should, you know, make this sound this way. And Kirk, you should play it solo differently. So he can, uh, and he's said in interviews, like I could never make them do anything they didn't want to do. I could just, you know, make suggestions and help them make the record yeah. better. But, uh, but I think it was helpful that he wasn't a fan, that he could, you know, sort of, you know, have that sort of outside influence. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense too, because 
it was really, you know, after the release of that album that we, we what we kind of touched on was that they went, you know, just blew up in their popularity and brought metal up with it, which is really fascinating to me. There's a quote in the book that you shared that says, um, this is regarding the song, The Unforgiven. It says, it's a showdown with myself, which is what James has said of The Unforgiven. And I'm just wondering what you think he meant by that. Because I've been pondering and I just, I've I've been trying to like, just like looking at the lyrics and everything, figure out what he might mean by that. No, um, that's such an interesting song because he's had, uh, in the movie Absent, he says it's his most personal song. It's obviously the only song he's ever written sequels to. He has such a... um, something he's talked about a lot in interviews is shame he brings it up he's like this is part of my support group you know when i do my 12-step program this is part of my regiment when he when he plays the unforgiven he says you know forgive yourselves at the end and it's it's such a a profound part of his life and um and i guess that it's the way that he sort of you know comes to terms with you know he has anger about his parents about his father leaving him about his mother not getting help when she was sick and you know anger about himself for not being able to be sufficient in the ways that he wants to be and uh i think that that you know that theme of finding forgiveness for yourself and finding forgiveness for the people who have wronged you and finding forgiveness for this religion and you know on the record he's so he lashes out at the god that failed and you know he's um and uh i think that that's something that he struggles with you know he obviously has a lot of intensity and you, i think he's got another quote about unforgiven where he says something like or it might be the god it's around the black one where he says that song will bring me back as much as i let it hmm. you know and he's like i i you know danger of getting too far into that but i you know i have to have some sort of distance from it but it's uh it's such a uh, a powerful expression and yet it's still um vague enough that a lot of people can relate to it which is i think is part of metallica's strength which is that you know he doesn't say specifically you know i'm so mad about you know my christian scientist parents he's he says it in a broad enough term that conveys you know that intensity and the the feeling but also um speaks in a way that people have different problems can relate to and find uh, empathy with yeah yeah i think that that's good i that's a that isn't a direction that my brain allowed me to go which is why i'm glad i asked you because you've spent the time doing the research um my big like pivotal moment with this band was when they released SNM. I don't know what it was about that, but 
it just I had a discman at the time and I got the it was a it was a double, wasn't it? It was two CDs yeah. in that. And it was a um I just remember nonstop having that going because if people were mad about the black album, I can't yeah. imagine what those same people were thinking when they backed themselves up with a symphony. And so do you have any kind of tidbits about how that whole thing came together and why they decided to do that? You know, there was a speculation on it. Um, you know, Lars is a deep purple fanatic. They did something with the symphony um, years earlier. Um, they obviously have the clip influence and, you know, they were sort of, to get something in there they're also a band that's constantly looking into the uh the next direction you know and one thing i say is in the song you know through the never you know who we are we ask forever or they're constantly asking like are we the same band that made load or reload or or the garage inc or or um snm and then saint anger like all completely different left turns within a few years and they're just constantly sort of looking for um a new thing to do they're also very um also a very cinematic metal band. I think you hear that on um, on SNM. You know, they connected the conductor Michael Kamen's a famous uh, film composer. Uh, yeah. you know, by that time, by 1999, we already have like symphonic black metal, like you know, Emperor and bands like that. And SNM sounds nothing like that. It sounds more like a movie score. It's very. Uh, it sounds very. Um, I think one critic said it sounded very Tim Burtonish. You know, it's very. Um, yeah. It, uh, and I think that yeah, that's sort of an angle that they. Uh, you know, want to explore more. I mean, it, what surprised me about it is how much of a natural fit that it ended up being. Like, I, I really felt like if you'd never heard of the band, you'd never heard a single note that they'd played and you just listened to that album, you would just think that that was what that band was because the yeah. way that those strings and everything fit in there was just perfectly arranged with how those songs were, were structured and written. Definitely. And, you know, for new songs like No Leaf Clover, like... They sound like they're written for the orchestra, you know, and they the band has said, you know, we want to take ourselves out of our comfort zone and do stuff that was new to them and new to us also. So we're doing some new songs and yeah, I cannot imagine them. You know, sometimes I hear bands work with lots of strings and stuff like that. I'm like, uh, just you know, strip down the production, keep it back to the keep it simple. But uh, I cannot imagine that song without it. It doesn't uh, it really benefits the song and uh, works with it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm not going to take up too much of your time. I've got just a couple of more questions here. And one of them is there's the big four of metal. And I'm going to let you list them. But I'm wondering, in your opinion, is there a big four or is there just Metallica? And then there's everything underneath Metallica. Well, uh, you know, there's the big four. There's, <laughs> um, there's Slayer, Megadeth, Anthrax, Metallica. Um, they're four of my favorite bands in the world. They're four of my favorite things to talk about and argue about. I think everyone who loves that kind of music has had uh, that kind of fight. People have uh, had that argument and said, like, well, you know, someone else should be in the big four. It should be, you know, you know, Metallica, Megadeth and Testament or Exodus or something like that. Yeah. But or, um, or is Metallica just the big one? Like some people have said that it's uh, and uh, yeah, on that scale, you 
do see it, but I think that Metallica sort of can do both. You know, the way I compare the big four is it's like, if it were British Invasion Vans, it would be Metallica is the Beatles, Slayer is the Stones, Megadeth is the Who, and Anthrax is the Kinks. And oh, nice. So you have thought about this. <laughs> and uh, I think that, you know, the Beatles are obviously a, and Metallica are obviously huge cultural forces that have, you know, spawned, you know, tons of ideas and merchandise that, you know, the other three have not necessarily, I mean, even like the Stones who come closest are not quite on the, on the Beatles level, but Agreed. it's um, of, of popularity, but it's, um, but um, I think that Metallica can kind of touch into both. You know, when I saw, I wanted the big four show in, uh, in um, New York city at Yankee stadium. And I was impressed at how Metallica was clearly the biggest. And there were some people who, you know, kind of just showed up after Slayer. We're like, okay, we're just going to see Metallica because they, yeah. they could build Yankee Stadium on their own. They're not, uh, they um, they are much bigger than any of the other bands, but it's, um, but they also can kind of match them for intensity. And there are moments where, you know, they'll play some of those Master Puppets and Kill em All songs and they feel like they're the peers of, uh, of Anthrax and Megadeth and Slayer. And I think that they, they kind of work both lines. They kind of work as the big one and as the and and as a um as like a real big four band if you put some of those you know thrashy metallica songs on mixtape with any of those bands they'll hold up they'll be they'll sound just as you know cult and just as you know as metal as uh, any of those guys yeah do you do you have a favorite metallica song that's a good question um Black and let me all- let me before you jump into it I, what i'm wondering is has that song maybe changed pre-writing the book to post-writing the book? Um, maybe, you know, uh, I, I think Blacken is one of my favorites, uh, Wherever I May Roam, uh, Battery, um, they've got so many, uh, um, I guess when you write about books, there's some that you, uh, when you write books, there's some that you are easier. There are some songs that, you know, love that song. It's a great song. And then I don't have that much to write about it. Whereas there's some songs like, for example, To Live Is To Die. And it just, uh, you know, that's the one where um, after Cliff died, they sort of pieced his um, his remaining leftover songs together, made this like long instrumental. And there was so much kind of weight and sadness. There's this moment where all the instruments cut out really suddenly. It's like a quick death and it just like gives me chills. And uh, so I guess I started to appreciate that a lot more um, when I wrote the book. Uh, and also just going through um, every one of their albums. So, uh, so thoroughly, you know, I mean, I remember listening to Hardwired a lot when it came out and I was like, this is great. It's exactly what I need right now. Put away for a little bit. Then, you know, the book comes out and I write my chapter on it. And I'm like, this holds up really well. This is a really good, like, and I started listening to recreationally more. I was like, this is like my running album. It's like Hardwired. So yeah. And uh, just thinking about it's, you know, it's time in uh, American history now at this point where it's just like, you know, putting out that record 
at that time, you know, in this world in, you know, 2016, like, you know, what that means and uh, getting some sort of distance from it. It was like, wow, this is great. And uh, so, yeah, it does change your favorites, you know, uh, writing a book about Metallica is the short answer. Yeah, I, I like that. And I really like that little tidbit on that song that you gave us. That's the, the those are the little details that I just oh, absolutely yeah. love and crave. Um, all right, Ben Apatoff, I really appreciate your time. The book Metallica, the 2495 book is out and ready. And um, so much good stuff. I appreciate it. And um, I hope that you have a good rest of your day. Thank you, too. Thank you so much to Ben for coming on and not only just taking some time to talk to me about this amazing band that is Metallica, but for kind of rekindling my relationship with them. I used to listen to this band all the time back in high school, and it's been a while, but you know the last few times that I've gone for a run or worked out, that is just what naturally has come on. So I want to tell him that I appreciate that, and I appreciate all of you. Guys, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.